Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org. Welcome to the first Thursday Arts Preview of 2024, where the P is still parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. Continuing a tradition of more than 30 years, the Banff Center Mountain Film Festival is coming back to Spokane this month, but this year it's in a new venue. We'll talk to festival organizer Paul Fish a bit later in the program about what's showing and which films he's looking forward to. As we enter the new year, there are fresh exhibition openings to go along with it. At the Terrain Gallery on North Monroe, four artists have just opened Listening for an Echo, which is a joint exhibition that features visual riffs on the theme of farming and agriculture. Pam Deutschman, Abby Evans, Karen Mobley, and Megan Perkins are each contributing unique work to the exhibition, including photography, watercolors, and wood-burning drawings. As they were preparing Listening for an Echo, Karen and Pam came into the studio to talk about that work and how they came together around this theme. This show came about because Pam came and talked to me about the photographs that she's been making of a particular farm with some very specific cows, dogs, crops, other things. And I went, wow, that would be a fun thing to explore as a topic. And so I started thinking about farming. I started thinking about Pam's farming, the farming that my family did when I was growing up, the farming of the wheat farm where I used to live, the farming of the area where we are, my absolute fascination with going up on top of Steptoe Butte and looking off the edge. And I thought, well, let's let's put a proposal together for terrain around this idea. And what I realized is that in a lot of ways, this isn't like an agrarian group. We are not scientists <laughs> of agriculture. We're kind of echoing around in our little chamber of visual and conceptual information about farming. We're more a little bit like Wendell Berry or Van Gogh thinking about farming. It's more metaphoric. And in some cases, like in my work, I've been thinking about the elegance of the tiny details on a farm. I think that the four of us, the four artists, Abby Evans, Megan Perkins, Pam Deutschman, and me, we all are approaching the farm story in a different way. Yeah, and we have the subject and the medium. Right. And I kind of want to tease those out with you in a little more detail, but I'm going to turn to Pam. And Pam, I'd like to talk about those two aspects with you and what you're bringing to this exhibition. So what are some of the subjects of your work and maybe the themes that emerge in that, but also what medium are you working in? So I have a more intimate connection to the land and a specific farm. I started spending time at a farm about an hour and 15 minutes away from here, I have been visiting that farm for six years, and my current body of work developed without my even realizing it. I was, as a city person, an urban dweller, fortunate to experience a life quite different from anything I had ever known and to witness firsthand 
the joys and struggles on this fourth-generation heritage farm. So all of a sudden, I noticed all of these images. I was photographing the animals, the majestic landscape, and really spending a lot of time hearing stories about the families and the whispers that came before. Mm -hmm. So I was really there as an extra set of hands, albeit not very capable or strong. Um, This is not for me about being able to stop and document what was happening around me. I couldn't ask the cow to turn (laughs) or suck that baby back in because I kind of didn't get that. I was really there working and partnering with the farmer who lives on the land. But I think my work is really informed by a stint I did as a forensic photographer, a crime scene investigator with the Tucson Police Department in the 90s. Oh, interesting. Now, that was a much different kind of documentation. (laughs) Um, It wasn't these fleeting, uh, spontaneous visual records on a crappy old iPhone. But what I really noticed, and the connection again to that past of mine, is all the death on the farm that's interspersed and mixed in. And so I was looking at the land, thinking about the patchwork of the land, thinking about quilts and all these family members and the current family members and the animals. And I started to stitch these things together as patterns, weaving in the life, the beauty, and these aspects of death. And I think there's probably parallels, too, between your work as a forensic photographer and life on a farm, because you talked about the death, and there's a very matter-of-fact approach to death in both fields. So I'm assuming that your photography, uh, in its capturing of this death, is not sentimental then? It is more matter-of-fact? I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly triggering in a lot of ways. And it's, you know, there's certainly a matter-of-fact approach for the farmer. For me coming in and just seeing the dog run after a sheep head or, you know, it, it was it's a little bizarre. And with the crime scene work, I was a woman entering a real man's world, and everybody was watching me, and I had to be very stoic and very calm, and then I could go home and kind of flip out a little bit or process. So yes, it was technical and clean and matter of fact, but that seemed crazy. (laughs) And Karen, if you could talk about your work, and again, I'll put the same question to you about this subject and what we see represented and the medium through which that's carried out. Well, so my subject is basically, I'm going to say loosely landscape, Mm -hmm. but I'm not painting an exact picture of a place. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like if you're going to look at this, you're going to not say, oh, that's Steptoe Butte or that was the picture of the Tetons or something. It's more abstract and some of it's even almost non-representational. It's very color and texture based. Oh, cool. Cool. And then I've also been kind of horsing around with a bunch of different materials. So there'll be some small paintings that are watercolor and gouache on paper that are essentially the size of sketchbook drawings are like nine by 12 inches. I have about a half a dozen of kind of crazy thing. I was teaching the kids next door how to do wood burning. 
So I have some little wood-burning pictures of the Palouse that are on pieces of found wood and wood that people gave me because I was collecting wood for, to teach the neighbor kids how to do wood-burning. I don't normally do wood-burning, but I have about five or six of those things, and I, they're going to be in the show. And then there'll be some larger oil paintings. I like to mess around with materials. And so what about Megan's work? So if you know Megan's work, a lot of her work is almost like sketchbook drawings. They're very small. She goes out and actually works on site in the plain air format. So these pictures that are in the show are more larger scale, like more formal paintings than what she oftentimes does. And so Megan has watercolors, and that's the main thing that she does normally. And Abby is also a photographer. So I think that Abby and Pam's approach is quite different. So they're distinct in their their way of working as photographers. I think it'll be interesting to see how they've approached a similar subject. And anyway, I think there'll be, you know, a nice juxtaposition of things that are very painterly and colorful and then things that are more documentary. Cool. Well, I want to thank you, Pam, and you, Karen, for coming in today and talking about this. It is really, really appreciated. Thank you, EJ. Thank you. That was artists Karen Mobley and Pam Deutschman discussing their new exhibition, Listening for an Echo, Something About Farming, which also features work from Abby Evans and Megan Perkins. It runs at the Terrain Gallery throughout the month of January, and there's a first Friday opening reception tomorrow, January 5th. More details on that event and the exhibition are available at terrainspokane.com. About a week from now, an annual cinematic tradition returns to Spokane when the Banff Center Mountain Film Festival comes to town. But this year it's being held in the Fox Theater, where the larger capacity should free up some additional seating for the routinely sold out festival. As usual, there are two film programs, one on Friday, January 12th, and the other on Saturday, January 13th, and they were both handpicked by Paul Fish, who coordinates the local Banff Film Festival screenings. When Paul came in to talk about what's in store this year, he said that he was especially excited about these particular selections. I think this is a great year, and the films this year are really extraordinary. There's a good variety. They're personal stories, which I like as much as the adventure. I like the storytelling when somebody tells a good tale that's true, and I think this year is filled with that. We're also moving the event to the Fox this year, so it's 1,500 seats. It won't be as crowded in the lobby. It's been sold out almost every year for the 37 years we're doing it, so we're hoping to do that again. Um, and there are two film programs. One is the Arnica and one is the Fireweed. Is it the Arnica that's shown the first night? Arnica will run Friday night and Fireweed will run Saturday night. And they're both really good programs this year. There's short, fun films. There's interesting films. There are incredible stories of adventure, you know, mountaineering adventure, or base jumping off the eternal flame, climbing it and then base jumping it. Um, and then there's stories of adversity. There's uh, one of my favorite was uh, um, Still Alive, which is the story of a young man with cystic fibrosis who is still climbing long after he was supposed to be gone. That's on Friday night, but on Saturday night, there's a great story called School of Fish, which is about Pebble Creek Mine in Alaska, 
um, which has been in the news for decades and what indigenous people are doing to preserve their culture and the land there. So there's adventure. There's something that gets us thinking. This year, I like that it's really gentle. It's a little less political than it's been in, sometimes in the past. So it's a really good story with more behind it to learn. Yeah, I know last year there was uh, at least one film on one of the days that highlighted indigenous cultures, and it looks like School of Fish is doing that as well. And what I like is before it was a story about indigenous cultures and not about us mm. uh, or non-indigenous cultures, and now they're figuring out how to tell the story of the indigenous people as adventurers. There's another film called Slides on the Mountain that is about indigenous people in Canada, some young men, young kids, excuse me, learning to ski their peak, the peak that's particularly meaningful to their tribe. And is there a, a thematic difference in these two programs? Is one, you know, more adventure oriented and one less so? Or are they just a different rotation of films on each night? It's a different selection of films each night. This year, I had four programs to choose from, and we definitely picked the best two. And I'm curious to hear about the programs that you didn't choose. Why didn't you choose those? I, one of my critiques, if I were a film critic, I'd say you have to tell your story really well, but we don't need to hear the whole story. Mm -hmm, we just mm -hmm. need to hear the important parts and what gives it continuity. And some filmmakers feel like you have to see the whole thing. And I thought there were some longer films that maybe wouldn't edit down as well in the other programs. But that's splitting hairs like between a gold medal and a bronze medal in the Olympics. They're all really good. <laughs> yeah, and the assumption that in order to be a film, it has to be a feature film and be 90 minutes in length or something like that. And just looking cursorily over these two film programs, it seems like it's got a, a really nice variety in terms of running time. So we've got on the Arnica, for example, we've got nine minutes, 27 minutes, 12 minutes, 30 minutes, five minutes. So it really hops back and forth between shorter bite-sized pieces yeah. and little more expansive pieces. Right. But don't worry if you don't like it. It'll be over pretty quick. <laughs> and there'll be something great after it. And in terms of the sports that are represented, I mean, usually with this film festival, we see something about base jumping or we see something about mountaineering. And I think last year, if memory serves, there was also something about cycling. But I know that there's one film with the Arnica film program called Leaving a Tread that's um, about a mountain biker in Mexico. So mountain biking factors into this too. No? There's, there's biking in, I think, both nights. And they're both pretty pretty good films. One's a forest film, one's a desert film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we get uh, variation in geographies yeah, as well. Exactly. And um, there are going to be sort of beneficiary nonprofits that are associated with this year's event. So it's not just the entertainment that you get from the Banff Festival, but also you're helping kind of share those proceeds. Yeah. So this year, um, with the move to the Fox, which is 1,500 seats, I've decided to give away up to 500 seats for a VIP event on Saturday night. And those tickets are $100. You can pick your beneficiary when you buy your ticket. And 97% of the money, I, I don't keep any of it. The Fox takes $3. <laughs> um, so 97 out of your $100 ticket will go to the beneficiary of your choice. And if we sold 500 of those tickets, we'd be leaving $50,000 with our favorite nonprofits in Spokane. And those are, um, this year we've got the Lands Council, the Inland Northwest Land Conservancy, the Spokane Nordic Ski Association, Friends of the Bluff, the Dishman Hills Conservatory, the Symphony, because it's their home, 
and uh, the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. So you can take your pick, and next year, if it goes well, we'll we'll grow it even bigger. So. Oh, that's really cool. So yeah, go enjoy some movies and also know that you're also supporting some really valuable nonprofits in the area. Right. And on those Saturday night tickets, Feast World Kitchen is doing appetizers for us. Um, and we'll have some door prizes just for people that are doing that uh, doing that event on Saturday night, plus great door prizes for uh, the festival also. And I know that organizers hate to show favorites, and so I hate to call on you for this, but is there any film that you are particularly excited about or that really spoke to you personally? You know, I really thought, uh, to be frank, was was a beautiful film. It's a surfing film, and it's a story about uh, an older person, you know, he's 60-something, I would guess, about my age, and uh, he's been building the surfing community in Southern California as, a, um, as an open and inviting community rather than what we think of as surfing as kind of this closed community. And I, I just thought it was a beautiful film about the community. Cool. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming in today thank and talking you. about this. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Paul Fish there, giving some background on this year's Banff Center Mountain Film Festival. The festival runs January 12th to 13th at the Fox Theater in Spokane, with an optional VIP package on Saturday. For tickets and details on the event itself, head to foxtheaterspokane.org. And if you'd like more information about the film programs, head to live-to-play.com, where you can also view teaser trailers for each program. And the Banff Film Festival isn't the only event with a new venue in 2024. In late December, the Blue Door Theater moved out of its longtime home in Spokane's Garland District and into a new spot downtown. The move almost tripled the theater's square footage. However, they're not just starting the year with a new stage and more space. They also just received Spokane Arts Grant Award funding for their middle and high school-focused Improv League program. Not long after they held an open house event for the new facility, the Blue Doors' Jim Moore and Alex Quamina came by to explain what Improv League is and how it fits into their School of Improv initiative. I want to get eventually to this Improv League grant that you got from the Spokane Arts Grant Awards, but first I want to talk about the new digs. Okay. I had the pleasure of seeing it and being there at the open house. Uh, how were things proceeding from your perspective? Uh, they're proceeding really well. As a group, as a theater, we've really pulled together to make it happen. We have some amazing people building the stage, building our new uh, tech booth, uh, coming together to move everything we need to move. And feedback we're getting is really positive about the space where people have seen it. Uh, there's so many possibilities and opportunities there. And for listeners who might not know about the move, you've moved from your very longtime Garland space, you know, in the Garland district, all the way over to the downtown milk bottle. So you've kind of left being across the street from one milk bottle into another. Talk about this space and what about it seemed like a natural home for Blue Door 3.0. <laughs> I like that, 3.0. And I think I want to stress downtown milk bottle on uh, 3rd and Cedar because a lot of people think we're moving into the 
other milk bottle on Garland, and we are not touching that space. They're going to continue to serve their amazing ice cream out of that <laughs> space. Um, I think for us, what the uh, space does is it gives us a lot more room. We're almost tripling our space. It provides more opportunities to offer classes, different types of classes. We can run our teen and our 8 through 12-year-old camps and classes at the same time, which a number of parents wanted us to do because they'd have a kid in both, but they ran on opposite weekends or something along those lines. So it really helps uh, our families not have to keep coming back and forth to the theater. It also allows us to do more adult classes, more shows. Uh, we'll potentially expand to having a Thursday night show, maybe a matinee show. We also are looking to help find a way to support other small theaters like we are with some performance spaces. Uh, so we're pretty excited about it. And also, I think there's going to be more opportunities for performers to go into the audience more potentially, because we're also not going to have fixed seating. So it's going to be, I think, a different experience. And I think it'll be a really good experience for people. Yeah, and speaking of opportunities, that brings us to Improv League, which is the project that has received Spokane Arts Grant Award funding. Now, what are the broad parameters of this? Improv League, let me start with the conception of it. I think that will help explain it. So me and Michael Glatzmeyer and David Honeycutt, we all came together and we said, man, I remember when we were in high school and we were doing improv and we just wanted to just have a whole community of people that all did that in that age group. That's kind of where the genesis of the idea, um, where we just want to create a network of improvisers that can all share that artistic neighborhood together. So that's where it started. And it's been slowly expanding ever since. So currently we have three high schools involved. And we have, as well, a middle school and an elementary school program that we're working with right now, just kind of testing out the waters with that. So one thing is that I feel like there's a lot more support and structure with athletic programs where they have these clubs and whatnot, where when it comes to the theater programs, either you have just the, the theater or you're kind of in the off season. And this program kind of gives a space for the, the, the kiddos who might be in the off season. So there's always going to be an improv team there that can come and teach you how to be a better actor in general and how to use your skill. How do we listen better? Those kind of things. And which high schools are you working with and piloting this initially? So currently we're at Mount Spokane High School, we're at Rogers High School, and we're at Ferris. And the community school. Okay, so there's four. four. Oh, and we're also out at Otis Orchard doing some work with their middle school. And why those schools specifically? Did you identify them geographically, or do you have some personal tie to them? Well, Mike, who's one of the founders, he went to Rogers. And Ferris has had a longstanding improv team, over 20 years, I believe. And with Mount Spokane, I was originally their coach. I've been their coach for over five years now. And when I heard about Mike's project, I said, I want in on this. And that's how we kind of formed the first uh, three schools. And then we reached out to community schools to figure out, hey, would you want this? It would help with your programming. And they said yes. And how do you envision this playing out? Is this something that you're going to be doing on a weekly basis? Is this something that you're going to be doing on a daily basis, but only for limited runs? It depends on the school, really, because each school has different needs for how they want their program to run. 
with uh, the community school, it's during their school time. Um, with uh, Mount Spokane, it's an extracurricular activity. Uh, and we, we have to do a few other things where uh, our students have a student-led practice and there's a practice with me. Where Rogers has uh, just a coach-led practice, it's a little bit shorter. It's it's kind of takes shape on what the community needs at that school and how can we facilitate the program there. So I wish I could say it's a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, but it's not. And if I'm a high school student in one of these schools, or I am a parent of a high school student in one of these schools, what can I imagine, what sort of activities might be taking place? Like, are you going to be doing sketches? Are you going to be doing improv-style workshops? Or is it kind of all of the above? Currently, right now, what we have is majority of the schools are clubs. So at the beginning of the year, we held an audition for the, for the clubs. And then once the we process all the auditioners, uh, we select the team, and that team works together for the full year with each other where they learn the SAN, they learn about listening, they learn about how to create diverse characters, internal and external motivations. Um, they learn about how do I engage an environment to really flesh out a scene, um, as well as some of the other things that you wouldn't normally think about is technical theater skills. I really believe in enhancing our stories through light and sound and audio. So I work with a tech team at both of my schools I coach at to help get them more comfortable with their lighting consoles, their audio consoles. And we call them technical improvisers because they're also adding things into the scene. They're adding the music. The music can instantly ground a location. We're adding lighting that can embellish an emotion on the stage. And uh, Jim, is this an extension of the Blue Door as we tend to conceive of it, or is it more affiliated with the Spokane School of Improv? So the Spokane School of Improv is a function of the Blue Door Theater. So all these things are expansions of the Blue Door Theater. And we did the Spokane School of Improv because really we're going beyond what you might think a theater would teach, which is why we wanted to have people understand that now we're offering classes that aren't just about, say, performance, like an intro class, but we're offering classes on self-care, on punning, on um, poetry writing, these different types of approaches. We have a class for lawyers now. So it's really taken on that role. And Improv League is about teaching. So it falls underneath our Spokane School of Improv. However, it's all part of the Blue Door Theater. There's one identity there in terms of the Blue Door. And as far as this grant funding, is that simply covering the the faculty's time or are there other costs involved? It covers uh, faculty time. It's also going to cover a little bit around promotion of some of our uh, events that will be open to the community and some of the coordination. And I also want to stress that it's not just about covering what we currently do. It's meant to also help us expand. So we are looking to bring on a few other schools so that we can uh, subsidize the costs uh, for that. Yeah, and that kind of leads into another question that I had, which is what opportunities will the public have to see what these students can do and to see the the product of their work? Well, we try to have monthly shows with the schools that are are fully ready for that. Um, So we try to advertise once a month, hey, this is an improv show to the community. And one, one thing that's really great about that is those improv shows that the schools put on generates funds for those drama departments. They're the ones that get the, a lot of the benefit from that. And I would say also um, the end-of-the-year yeah. showcase, which is where we 
bring together all the teams from the different schools together to perform, and that's open to the entire community to come to and help support the program. In the case of the showcase, that funding goes back into Improv League, whereas the funding for the shows at the schools goes back into the schools. Our goal, I think, is really, if we can, be in every high school kind of in the area, and we're looking at middle schools also. So. We want to be everywhere, every school. Our name will be everywhere on every theater wall. That's not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex and Jim, I want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Alex Quimina and Jim Moore of the Blue Door Theater there, giving some background on the Improv Theater's new downtown location and its newly SAGA-funded Improv League program. The first official show in the new building is on Friday, January 5th, and you can find out more about the Blue Door's upcoming performances, as well as their improv class schedule, at bluedoortheater.org. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as they air, be sure to subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm EJ Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org.